Well, welcome everyone to worship. So glad that you're here. Before we dive into this brand new series, I want to talk to you for just a moment about the next series. And you say, well, that's weird. We're not even really started with this one and already talking about the next. Well, here's why. I really need your help with it, okay? In fact, uh, I'm going to ask you to give your input. I want you to literally vote on which messages you would like to include in the next series. It's called You Ask For It. And what we're going to do is give you 10 options on messages. And I'd like for you in the next couple of weeks just to uh, decide or to vote on which of the which of those you believe should be preached. We're taking the top six, okay? So whichever of those 10 get the most votes, those six that get the most votes are gonna become the next sermon series. As a matter of fact, today you can take this survey right online if you'd like. Just go on our website, gracefellowship.com, and you'll see the marker there, the banner on the homepage that says, you ask for it survey. And you just click on you ask for it survey and you can take that right there online. We'll also be posting this link to each of our Facebook pages uh, so that you just can't miss it. I really appreciate your help with this. I'm looking forward to that next series. You ask for it. I, I believe it's gonna generate a lot of interest and answer a lot of questions as we look into God's word and what it says about some of these very, very important issues. I really value your input, so thank you in advance. Well, you go to your oncologist, and she's going to give you the report on the biopsy. And she looks at you and says, nine out of 12 lymph nodes tested were cancerous. She says, you have an aggressive cancer. And she goes on to describe to you all that she discovered. And she said, based on my 25 years of experience dealing with these things and all the evidence that we see, she looks you in the eye and says, you have one month to live. What would you do? Back in 2008, Kerry Shook, he's a pastor in Texas, and his wife Chris wrote this little book called One Month to Live, subtitled 30 Days to a No Regrets Life. Now, I don't often do this. I probably won't do it a whole lot in the future, but I do believe there's some value when, on those rare occasions when I urge you to consider reading a book along with the series, okay? So you can pick this book up today uh, out in the cafe area. You can pick it up there at the cafe, buy a copy. Uh, or if you're an a ebook reader like I am, you can just go online, of course, and just download it to your iPad, that kind of thing, whatever you would prefer. But I, I really urge you to pick up a copy of this. It's a good read. Lots of amazing quotes in the book. It's worth it just for the quotes in there. And uh, as we look into God's word the next four weeks, this will be a great reinforcement for what we're learning together. 
The book is broken into four big sections. Live passionately, love completely, learn humbly, and leave boldly. Okay, those are the four big sections in the book. And again, I think you'll find those very, very helpful, very intriguing. Now, I just want to be clear. Please don't misunderstand. This series is not aimed at that handful of people that might pass away in the next 30 days. Uh, I'm not trying to get some preemptive deathbed confession from someone who's being diagnosed and given a dire prediction about their life. That's not it at all. In fact, I, I, I just want to be clear. I'm really talking not so much to people who've literally got 30 days to live, but those who've got a long time to live. It's just that this question of one month to live, it tends to focus us and get our attention. I I really am talking primarily to people that God is going to give many, many, many more years. But think about it. Don't you agree? If you knew you had one month to live, how would it change your life? Wouldn't it suddenly get you thinking about what's most important to you? Is it family? Is it faith? Is it relationships? Is it a job? Is it the future? What really matters to you the most? Years ago, in the country music world, Tim McGraw sang a song, became a number one country song. And it is called Live Like You Were Dying. And no doubt many of you, most of you probably have heard that song. And it, it kind of is the same scenario. A guy gets this very bad prognosis and suddenly he comes alive. I've been praying all week that God would do that for many of us as we go through this series together. Because you know, great death is the great equalizer. I've reminded you many times, one out of every one person's dies. And when we ponder that, when we remember that there's only one life to live, and it'll soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will really last, It really has a way of sobering us up. I'm amazed at how many people, although they have one life to live, never really get around to the task of living. Do you know what I'm talking about? Their life is filled with stuff, but it's mostly trivia. Their schedule is jammed with activities, but they're things that wouldn't really matter much if they knew they had one month to live. And the premise of Shook's book and the premise of this whole series is that if you live as if you had only a month to go, it would dramatically alter the way you spend your time and your energy. This week, we want to launch into it by talking about living passionately. How do we have the kind of drive and energy to accomplish what God wants us to and to be the person? that he really wants us to be. Carrie Shook writes in this book on page 13, often we're tempted to play it safe and settle for far less <clears throat> than we were made for. I know so many people, he writes, whose favorite day of the week is someday. 
countless people in every stage of life say, someday I'm going to go for all that life has to offer. When I retire, I'm going to enjoy life. Someday I'm really going to live for God and get my act together. I'll start loving my family better. When I make enough money, then I'll, I'm really going to spend more time with my kids. Someday, when my schedule slows down, then I'm going to get involved at church. When I have more time, then I'll focus on being more spiritual. Someday, one day, when, if, then it's over. When are we going to wake up and realize that one day is now? Boy, those are sobering words. And for that reason, sort of the theme verse for this entire series is one of my personal favorite verses in all the Bible. It's found in Psalm 90. Here's what it says. The psalmist, by the way, this is the only psalm written by Moses, and he knew something about living with an uncertain future. He knew what it meant to follow God in faith, to be sure, and to to learn to try to treasure every day, said, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Boy, I love that verse. I literally reflect on that and this whole psalm, Psalm 90, every single week. It's that important to me. But I love the way the New Living Translation renders it. It says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so we may grow in wisdom. And in a sense, that kind of sums up what this entire series is about. So here's the bottom line. As one of your pastors here at Grace, I just want to urge you for the next 30 days just to live like you were dying. I want to urge you to think some radical thoughts. I want to urge you to cut down to the bottom line of what's really important. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It really doesn't matter what stage you may be in. This is going to be a great time for all of us, young and old, and everyone in between, to reevaluate our lives. And I'm asking God to do some awesome things. One thing I know for sure, the Lord wants us to live abundant lives. Would you agree with that, congregation? Would you agree the Lord wants us to have a full and abundant life? Jesus made that clear. John 10.10, it says it, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, with that as a sort of foundation, let's launch now into this first message in this four-part series. And I want to talk to you today about three different things you can do if you want to live more passionately. One is choose a passion that will last beyond this life. That's a very important starting point. Your life has to be about something that's not only important, honorable, noble, but something that will last beyond this life. Can I tell you something I know about you based on God's word? I know that God made you unique. We talk about every snowflake, every fingerprint being unique. I know God made you unique. Here's how it happens. God gave us gifts he wants us to use, talents, abilities, opportunities, and all those together make a unique you. But can I tell you something else that is utterly unique about you? And that is the combination of those along with the passion God's given you. 
God places within every human heart a passion for something. You say, Pastor, how do I know what that is? It's what makes your heart beat a little faster. It's what makes you want to get up in the morning and and live another day on this earth. It's what you can give your time to, and it doesn't drain you and wear you out. Rather, it has a way of kind of energizing you and making you want to do it even more. At the age of 12, we could already see what the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ was. This is one of the few glimpses we get into his life as a young person. It's found in Luke chapter 2. His parents had lost touch with where he was. He could not be found anywhere. They looked high and low. They were on their way back home to Nazareth. But Jesus was nowhere to be found. They finally find him back in Jerusalem in the temple, no doubt. And verse 49 of Luke 2 gives us this explanation. The Lord says when they questioned him about where he'd been, what he'd been up to, he said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus is saying, look, I had to be about my father's business. Early on, Jesus was putting a stake in the ground. I'm all about the word and the will of my father. And he made that clear throughout his entire ministry. The passion of his life was pleasing God the Father. It was true when he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew it would mean a brutal death. He followed that passion further when in the garden he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He continued to pursue the passion of his life, pleasing his father, doing his father's will, even until his death on the cross, when he finally cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. The work the father sent me and commissioned me to do has been completed. Jesus had one driving passion. I wonder what your passion is. You better be careful choosing it because once you get a passion in life, you become known for that. I've got another book up here with me today. Uh, This uh, you may recognize as a high school yearbook. Some of you have those from your high school days. I've got three or four of these from my years in in high school. And, And you know it's a common practice, I think, Uh, all over the U.S. to have your classmates, your peers, write things in these pages, right? Did you guys do that? Yeah, I see many heads nodding. You, You had your friends and your classmates come along and write these little things. And so I've got a dozens of entries in here on a number of these pages and on the front and back fly cover here. I'm going to read to you just a few of these, and I want you to see if you can figure out what my passion was in high school. How's that? Is that a deal? See if you can figure it out. This is going to be tough now. I hope you got your thinking caps on. This is going to be like rocket science for you. So let me do, let me do, I, I haven't even marked these. They're just all over here on these pages. Let me read a few. I have to turn this one upside down. And, and you'll have to pardon the redundancy of some of these. It shows you the lack of creativity of my 
high school classmates. To a great guy and a dedicated player, Rex, we're going to the state championship this year. Your teammate, Daryl Snyder. And we were going to the state tournament. Here's a girl who was the best player on the girls' team. To a real great person and a great basketball player, I hope after we graduate, you won't forget me. Good luck in basketball, Janet Richter. Wow. Here's one from Tommy Berry. Rex, to a good basketball player and friend, good luck always. All right. Here's one to a really nice guy. Keep up the good work in basketball, Lisa Johnson. Wow. Are you seeing a pattern here? Are you seeing a theme? Well, let's go to another page because those are all... Whoa, wait wait a minute. The number one art student in my class, Spongy Washburn was his name. He He actually drew a picture here of a basketball hoop and a big hand shooting a basketball. Isn't that weird? Wow. Uh, let's go to the front and see if we can get away from this. Rex, you're a real sweet guy. Wow. And one of the best basketball players I know. <laughs> best of luck, your friend, Cindy Dorning. Big Rex, you're a real cool guy and a good basketball player. Good luck with life, John White. Now, I, I'll spare you the agony of reading any more of these. Do you see a theme there anywhere? If you had one guess, what was the passion of this young man's life? And if I'd read more, you'd see I actually had a nickname, the round ball kid. I lived for basketball. You know, there's nothing wrong with with having passion for that. But whatever you choose as your passion, you'd better be careful because it will become your identity. I know some guys and You could say of them, boy, that guy lives for work. He's always got his face stuck in a laptop working. Boy, that lady, she's a talker. I'm telling you, she's all about talking, talking, talking. Always got her phone to her ear. Always got her Bluetooth hooked up. She's always talking to somebody and spreading the latest news. Boy, that guy, he lives for his sports team. I'm telling you, he's not a fan. He's obsessed. That's the passion of his life. Be sure that what you choose is worth giving your life to. Do any of you remember the name Bubba Smith? You may in a moment. Bubba Smith was a really good pro football player, but when he retired from football, it's interesting, he got hired by a beer company to do beer commercials. And he's the guy who would tear the tops off of beer cans, you know, really strong guy, and and. And uh, what he really became known for was this light beer commercial that, where he was trying to find out if it tastes great or less filling. Which one was the most, tastes great or less filling? You remember now who this was, right? Well, the ironic thing about all that is Bubba Smith wasn't a huge beer drinker. He, he just enjoyed making these commercials. It was a lot of fun, a lot of camaraderie, really made a lot of money doing it, and it was kind of easy to do. Well, during that time, he got invited to come back to Michigan State for homecoming. And he was going to be the grand marshal of the parade at homecoming day at his alma mater, Michigan State. And so he was in the limo at the front of the parade, and people lined the streets, masses of people. And, and Bubba Smith said that his, 
He was so honored to be there for this and everything, was excited about the day. But as he made his way down the street with these throngs of people on both sides, he said they were shouting out things at him. They weren't shouting, welcome back, Bubba, we love you, Bubba, or things like that, nor were they saying, hail to Michigan State. On one side of the street, they were yelling, tastes great, and on the other side, they were yelling, less filling. And he said, although it made him kind of chuckle, it was like this epiphany moment as he was riding along there in the limousine. And he realized, wow, our message is getting through. This is making a huge impact on these students at Michigan State. And the message is getting through is, Bubba Smith says, it is really cool to drink beer and a lot of it. And he said, it was like an epiphany for me. And he said, when it came time to re-up the contract and re-sign, he said, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it because I didn't want my life to be known for that. There was a little voice in the back of my mind that kept saying, stop, Bubba, stop. There have been so many times in my life where I've heard this voice say, stop, Rex, stop. But in my pride and my lust and my selfishness, I've barreled on ahead because I wanted to do it my way and follow my passion. William James said, the greatest use of life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. And he's absolutely right. And let me just say before we leave this point, and I'm spending a little more time here than I will on the others Let me just say before we leave this, one of the greatest thrills and honors of my life is to be a part of a church where there's a whole lot of women and men who really get this. You know what I'm saying? We have leaders, we have amazing Christ followers in this church that really get this idea that there's only one life and it's going to soon be passed and only what we've done for Christ will. Can I give you a quick example of that before we move on? Back in 2006... We were one congregation, one location, one campus. It it was the Latham location. And we had moved into the Latham building in 2002, and the church was growing rapidly by hundreds each year, and a lot of people were coming to Christ, and a lot of people were being uh, discipled into the faith and growing deeper. But but we were running into some space issues at that point. There was well over 2,000 people in the church, and we just wondered what we were going to do. Debbie had heard about the multi-site movement back in 1999, and she and I had gone and studied it and visited a multi-site church, but for seven years, we had just studied it, but not really taken any serious action. And I'll never forget a meeting we had of our elders and our executive team, our top leaders in the church, where we went away in an off-site meeting. Oh, this, I literally get goosebumps when I think about this moment. Because it was at that meeting that we said it's time to either fish or cut bait here on this multi-site thing. You see, we had people driving in from over an hour to get to church here. We had many people driving in from 35 to 45 minutes just to get to church and worship together. I thought, what are we going to do? Because God has called us to make more and better disciples. And if it's all just in one place, we're going to reach a limit How can we really be all God's called us to be? And we drew a line in the sand. We said it's time to act. And we decided that our future was going to be multi-site. 
Today, we have four different locations, hundreds of people worshiping at those locations. All of them are being effective, reaching their communities and all around. And because we made that strategic step, God has really honored that and blessed. But can I tell you the attitude in the room that day? This is what's so good about it. The attitude in that room, I can sum it up like this. We're all going to be dead 100 years from now. And what will matter then is not what we kept, but what we gave away. We're all going to be dead 100 years from now. And what will matter then is not how comfortable we were, but how much we sacrificed. And even though we knew the learning curve would be huge, even though we knew it would challenge all of us, even though we knew it would change our entire approach to ministry, and it has... I'm so thankful that we've got a group of men and women who are willing to say, let's go for it. And that's still the attitude all of us need to have every single day. Whether we've got one month to live or 50 more years. The second thing I would say to you is this. If you're going to live passionately, not only do you choose something that's worthy, something that will live beyond you, beyond this life, but pursue your passion with gusto. You see, passion has a way of propelling people. I mean, watch March Madness right now. And these men and women who are playing basketball and in tournament time and and get their story. And what you'll find time and again is huge sacrifice that was made somewhere along the line in order for them to be at this level of play. It's just the way it goes. Passion makes that possible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So let me ask you again, do you have a passion? What is it? But let me ask you this, are you pursuing that passion with gusto, with your whole heart? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you pursuing it with gusto? The Old Testament has many inspiring stories, but few of them inspire me as much as the one that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's one of those little stories that a lot of people aren't even aware of. It's the story of King David. And the Philistines are coming against him. And it tells the story there in that chapter about David's 37 mighty men. There were 37 of them who did great exploits. They were just amazing warriors for the Lord and for David. But three of them particularly stood out. Can I tell you their names? Joshab Bashabeth. I know you're going to name your next child that. I know it. I just know it. Joshab Bashabeth. He was kind of the standout guy. He killed 800 in one particular encounter. And then there was Shammah, who uh, was known for one particular fight with the Philistines, where even though his friends had abandoned him, he stood strong and routed the enemy. And then there was Eliezer, the son of Dodai. I'll bet he had a lot of fights growing up with a uh, father's name like that. He learned to fight to protect himself. And the Bible tells us that at one time, Eliezer fought so long and hard, his sword stuck to his hand. 
It just kind of got frozen in his hand. And all three of these guys were amazing and loyal warriors to King David. Well, here's the deal. The enemy is swarming everywhere, and they've particularly taken over Bethlehem, his hometown. Remember during the Christmas play when you were in that, and the, the angel said, unto you is born this day in the city of David. What's the city of David? Bethlehem. And the Philistines, the enemy, had taken over Bethlehem. And so David, hiding out for his life from the enemy, remembers a cave that he had hidden in years before when he was running from King Saul, the cave of Adullam, and he goes back there to hide out. And once in just almost a passing thought, he says, wow, I sure would like some water from the well in my own hometown. It's the best water in the world. And these three mighty men who are close colleagues, they hear that, <coughs> and they go over to the side, and they have a conversation. And they look at each other and go, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah. And even though it was 12 miles away, and even though the land was swarming with the enemy, these brave men did the unthinkable. They went and broke through. The scripture says in 2 Samuel 23, they broke through the enemy lines, they drew well water from the well near the gate in Bethlehem, the very water David was craving, and they brought it back to the king. They probably walked in bloody, sweaty, out of breath. They pull out that water, and they say, oh, king, special delivery for King David. He's oblivious to what they've done. They say, drink up, king. I think you'll recognize where it's from. And David quickly realizes what has happened here. And he's overcome probably with emotion as he realizes the passionate loyalty of these three men and that they literally risked their own lives just to do this for him. What passion, what devotion. And he thought the only one worthy of such a sacrifice is the Lord. So instead of drinking it, this is amazing, David ceremonially lifts it up and pours it out as a sacrifice to the Lord. And then probably with great emotion, he explains his actions in verse 17. He says, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. And it could just as well read, such were the exploits of the three mighty men who pursued their passion with gusto. Is there anything in your life that would elicit that kind of passionate, risk-taking, commitment from you? The Apostle Paul lived that way in trying to defend himself from some accusations of false teachers. Paul described his life like this. Get a load of this. He said, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Paul, what are you doing, dude? Just living passionately for Jesus every day. Yeah, it gets me into some scrapes. Yeah, of course. My life is in danger. Sure, I have some near-death experiences. Sure, it's painful. But man, what a way to live. I got to ask you again, congregation. I got to ask you, Saratoga. Hey, Greenbush, I really would like an answer from you on this. Half Moon, what about you guys Latham, is there anything in your life that you're living that passionately for? If you had only one month to live, I got a feeling it might change the way most of us go about it. There's one other thing I want to mention in closing, just very quickly. Not only should you have a passion that's Worthy and, and that goes beyond this life, not only should you pursue that with gusto, but third, you should make sure that you share your passion with others. It was the great composer Schubert who said, what I possess in my heart, I will share with the world. That's the way, frankly, life ought to work. What's down in the well, friends, should come up in the bucket. Whatever's inside of us, what we really value, what we really treasure, ought to be obvious. Just as it was obvious to my classmates, wow, this guy's crazy about basketball. I wish they had said, wow, this guy's crazy about Jesus. Wow, he really loves God. And man, it shows. You know what? I think if we had only one month to live, I don't think we'd sweat a lot of small stuff. I think we'd keep the main thing the main thing, don't you? If we had just one month to live. I don't think we'd get bent out of shape about a lot of the trivia that tends to stress us out day by day. In Mark chapter 1, there's an amazing story about Jesus healing a leper. Can you imagine that? I mean, leprosy in that day was a horrible life sentence. He was not only faced with a lifetime of rejection and loneliness, but ultimately a very slow and painful death. And Jesus heals him. What 
an amazing miracle. But then Jesus said something strange. He said, don't tell anybody. You see, Jesus knew that if the word got out on this right now, it would prohibit him from moving freely between the villages and reaching the very people he wanted to reach. So he said, please, not yet. Don't tell anybody. My hour is not here yet. The timing's not right. People are going to try to force my hand if you tell people. But the leper did just the opposite. He was told not to tell anybody, but he went out and told everybody what Jesus had done. Now, I'm not condoning his disobedience, but here's the point. He was told to keep his mouth shut, and we've been told to open ours for heaven's sake. The question is, is there anybody that's hearing from you what your real passion is? One of the most inspirational young Christian artists that I've ever known in my lifetime was a young guy named Rich Mullins. Uh, Rich was not only a gifted artist, he was a radical follower of Jesus. And uh, he wrote a lot of number one songs, but probably the song he's best known for is the song, and this outdates some of you younger people, but it was called Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Rich Mullins wrote that song and performed it, and it was voted, by the way, by a group of Christian leaders and organizations to be the number one Christian song of the 20th century. Number one Christian song. But Rich Mullins had made a vow of poverty. It's just one of the many radical things about his life. And he gave away millions of dollars of royalty from his music to various ministries, particularly had a heart for reaching Native Americans. And so, tragically, he died after one of his concerts in an auto accident in 1997. But at that particular time, Rich Mullins was living on a Navajo reservation, had all of his possessions in his Jeep. He was 41 years old when he died, but his message was so radical, so passionate, it still rings out through his songs, and his passion still comes through the music that he left behind. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that Rich Mullins, when he was 25 years old, didn't say, you know what, I think I'll wait till I'm 40. And then I'll take God seriously. Then I'll live passionately. I'm thankful that Rich Mullins, at the age of 25, seized the opportunity. Because neither he nor we know how many days we've got left. Rich is known for a lot of his number one songs, but one of his songs that never made it to number one, I don't think, but is hardly known at all. It has a poignant lyric that I want to share in closing. Here's what it says. Live like you'll die tomorrow. Die knowing you'll live forever. Let's make this one and only life count. Let's live it with gusto. Let's live it with passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make this one and only life really count. Father, thank you. Thank you for how sobering it is when we remember that this life is like a mist here today, gone tomorrow. 
It appears even for a little while and then vanishes. And thank you for the inspiring example of so many people like Rich Mullins and so many others who lived with passion, who made their one and only life really count. Help us, oh God, to be that kind of people. Help us to have a passion, a central focus in life that's actually worthy of you and it'll go way beyond this life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would the ushers please come forward as we get ready to receive our tithes and offerings. What a, what a powerful, challenging message we heard tonight. And I'm looking forward.